Hello everyone, my name is Reese Karlinski and this is Young History, episode 119 on Burundi. The capital used to be Gateja, but now it is Bujumbura. The name Burundi has a few different theorized origins. One is that the Ha people, who lived here for a very long time, and eventually evolved into different people groups, called their land Buha, and it was corrupted to Burundi. The other theory is that the name comes from the native name for the land, which is Kirundi, and this name could have also been corrupted to Burundi when colonization started to reach this part of Central Africa. Burundi officially has two capital cities. Bujumbara is the largest city and main port of Burundi. It ships most of the country's exports, such as coffee, cotton, and tin, and has remained the city's economic capital, while Kateja was kind of the political capital for a very long time, and the transition has left them both in power, despite it leaning towards Bujumbara as the actual capital. Some weird facts are that in 2009, the government banned jogging because they saw it as a way to unite in small groups and possibly plot against the government. As of now, people still have to register jogging groups with the government in order to go jogging legally. Burundi borders the world's longest freshwater lake, which is Lake Tanganyika. It is also part of the larger Great Lakes region. And that pretty much gets us to the end of the intro, where I just want to roll right into what's going to go on next, and that's a whole lot of history. So I'm very glad you guys are here, and we're going to get this thing going. So one more time, my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History, and this is Burundi. You guys enjoy. Our origins begin with the Tua Pygmy people. They were the first people to live in the land. They were very famous for their small stature and their resource-based living. They used subsistence farming to maintain their lifestyle and eventually interacted with more people groups. The first one would be the Hutu people. They moved into town for the first time around 1000 CE and were part of the greater Bantu migration into the zone. They used their better fighting style and tall stature to subdue the Tua, making their numbers very small and making the Hutu the top of the food chain. They were an agricultural society and used farming to expand their economic wealth and use it for trade rather than just subsistence farming like the Twa were. Then the Tutsi peoples arrived later on when their nomadic practices brought them to the region. The Tutsi were cattle herders in the early days and they came from East Africa near the Nile River. Throughout the 1300s, they launched raids on the Twa and Hutu villages. Eventually, they established a monarchy with them as the leaders by the 1500s. They started a tributary system that charged taxes at a price for protection from the monarchy. They also forced a feudal system that used Hutu and Twa as the forced laborers. Once the Tutsi were in power, a class system was established that held Tutsis as the highest, Hutu as second-class citizens, and Twa at the very bottom. Traditional Burundian beliefs involved the veneration of ancestors and spirits. Ancestral spirits were believed to play a protective and guiding role in the lives of the living, so there were many ceremonies held to honor them. And much of the history, myths, and legends of pre-colonial Burundi were transmitted orally through storytelling and songs. Griots, or oral historians, played a crucial role in preserving the cultural heritage and history of this whole region, so that's why a lot of it isn't known for sure, but it's a thing where we just have to get the stories from these people. And of course, when colonialism happened, they didn't believe a lot of stories or swayed them for their own beliefs. It's a huge part of the narrative around African history is how much it was affected by colonialism and how much of their true history was wiped away. But one thing we do know is that the Burundi kingdom was established in 1680. Of course, the Tutsi were at the very top of the kingdom. British explorers then became the first Europeans to reach Burundi. The first explorers were Richard F. Burton and John Henning Speck. They arrived in 1858 in their search of the source of the Nile River which kind of now has been tracked to possibly being Lake Tanganyika because of its downstream position from the Nile and the way it's shaped. People believe that that could be the source of the Nile. 
Germany eventually got involved in land. At first, it was trade in the 1880s. After a lot of struggle, German East Africa was eventually established over Rwanda, Tanzania, and Burundi in 1891. Belgium then launched troops from the Congo to fight the Germans in World War I. They inherited control of Rwanda and Urundi after Germany was defeated in World War I. Then the League of Nations established Rwanda-Urundi as a united territory under the Belgians by stripping it away from the Germans. The Belgians followed the class system of Burundi a little too seriously and mistreated the Hutu. The Tutsi were selected to be kings and elected officials for the region. More on Belgian rule is that they changed what the class system was. So to this point, being a Hutu or Tutsi wasn't a set ethnic thing. Those distinctions came from class placement rather than anything else. So they were fluid. A man born in Hutu status, which would be lower income, more laborer, could ascend to the status of Tutsi if he enhanced his financial standing enough and became a strong family. The Belgians wanted to change that so that they can more distinctly put these people into a rigid system that would that would make them easier to tell apart, which is ridiculous. So, because of the fact that the Tutsi were usually a little bit taller and slightly lighter in skin, the Belgians picked them as the leaders and kind of doubled down in the system of Tutsi being better. And because of this, people were then required to carry an ID that labeled them Hutu or Tutsi. So, just keep in mind that the whole reason the Hutu and Tutsi tension becomes really high is because of the Belgians. Like, there was clashes there, just as there is between the classes. Even in, you know, super far west, we're talking United States, the rich have beef with the working class and the middle class, and both of them are always jostling for position in the government. That makes sense. But that was what was happening here. Very basic level, just political debates. People in different classes thought differently about their country. That's normal. It is the Belgians and the European influence that makes it so that there is this distinction where Tutsi is purely superior ethnically and by birth than the Hutu, and that's very dangerous and leads to a lot of things that we're going to see throughout this whole episode. After World War II, the Unity for National Progress Party, or UPRONA, was established in 1958. King the IV was the king to ask for independence in 1959. This was originally rejected, but the people did not accept it. Movements, protests, and policies were launched across the region that all pushed for the end of Belgian rule. In the 1961 election, UPRONA won most seats in the government and the leader of the party was the son of the king, Prince Louis Ragaswari. He was a huge symbol of peace and independence for Burundi. He married a Hutu woman to show the ethnic divisions were not necessary. He was also the largest advocate for independence in the nation. This angered Belgium and put him in a precarious position. Beyond this, Ragaswari started to associate with a lot of other African leaders that were trying to gain independence and push forth the pan-Africanism movement. And we can infer that all those things he was a part of is the reason that he was assassinated in October of 1961. So, Ragaswari dies in 61, political assassination, and this causes the tensions between the Hutu and Tutsi to explode, and a crisis of stability really starts to occur. And the timing of this was very odd because it's just, it's less than a year before actual independence comes for Burundi that the person who very likely would have been their president is assassinated. So, it's very shaky, and it's very, very shady to look at all the things that went down here. So then independence was officially declared on July 1st of 1962, and Burundi became a constitutional monarchy and separated from Rwanda because it was still in that Rwanda-Urundi unity. Pierre Ngendendumwe became prime minister in 1965. Controversially, he was a Hutu his whole life, and this made him a target for the Tutsi. The Tutsi population protested his leadership. Pierre went to visit his wife in the hospital while she gave birth, and when he left the hospital in the morning of January 15, 1965, he was assassinated by Tutsi extremists. 
The Tutsi then tried to establish complete control over the government. Joseph Bamina was a Hutu that acted as prime minister until the elections. He attempted to maintain stability in every way, despite the times being very tumultuous. The 1965 elections gave the Hutu a majority of seats in the National Assembly. Despite this result, the Tutsi king named Leopold Biha the prime minister, which was against the system because the ones who win the National Assembly are supposed to put forth their leader. The Tutsi just overruled this. So the Hutus started a coup and then were suppressed very violently. So tensions are just growing and growing and growing. In 1966, King Mobutu IV was ousted by his son, who became King Natar V. Michael Mikombero was selected as prime minister. Mikombero was a longtime military member who got schooling to become an officer. Eventually, he became the second in hand to the military overall. Michael Mikombero was also the one who suppressed the Hutu coup of 1965. After a short time as king, Natar was ousted by Mikumbero, who declared the country a republic. He was ousted because he tried to eliminate the government, under Prime Minister Mikumbero. Mikumbero then made himself president and became a military dictator. Eventually, former King Nataru tried to gain power back, but he was assassinated. Then the Hutu would attempt many times to overthrow the Tutsi government. This was known as the Hutu coup. The fighting was very tense and drew in foreign support. Joseph Mombutu of Zaire sent troops to back the Mikumbero government. So then, the Congolese rebels that were opposing Mobutu and Zaire swam across to Lake Tanganyika to back the Hutu rebels. These men were the Simba rebels and are very famous in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which was Zaire. In 1972, 2,000 Tutsi were killed in the southern part of the country by coups that were being fought by the Hutus. This coup started the murderous fire of Mikumbero, and the act of revenge was taken heavily. This was the 1972 massacre. Any Hutus with some intellectual certification from teachers, thought leaders, church leaders, doctors, and more were collected by the army and executed. This was known as the this became known as the Burundi genocide. Mikambero wanted all educated Hutus over the age of 15 dead because he said it was a threat to the Tutsi safety and that they needed to be eliminated. He assassinated most Hutu men and the entire Hutu elite class. As many as 200,000 people were dead and 200,000 more fled after all the murders. Most of the Hutus who fled went to Tanzania. So the Burundi government started to use airstrikes to destroy Hutu refugee camps. Tanzania then started to raise arms against Burundi, but Zaire and Mobutu, who was leading Zaire, mediated for peace so that a war wouldn't break out between the two. Then in 1976, Jean-Baptiste Baganza staged a coup to oust Mikumbero, and Mikumbero was officially exiled in 1977 after having one of the most tyrannical reigns that the world had seen in many decades. Bagaza became the head of government until 1987. He tried to ease tensions between the Hutu and Tutsi by giving concessions to the Hutu for how many people died in the 1972 massacre. In 1987, Bagaza was eventually ousted by Pierre Buyoya. In 1988, 20,000 Hutu were killed again. In the wake of this, Buyoya tried to ease ethnic tensions as much as he could by giving concessions to both sides and trying to mediate for peace with any leaders of each side, but they didn't really work. However, some progress was made in 1992 because there was a new constitution that made the country a full democracy. In 1993, the first democratic presidential election was held. Then, Melchor Ndadie became the first Hutu president and was subsequently assassinated. This officially started the Burundian Civil War, which was fought from 1993 to 2005. In 1993, the Hutu got their own get back in the horror that killed at least 150,000 Tutsi people. And this is just a story here where... Tensions that somewhat pre-existed between two classes were made to a thing where no longer were they fluid and the classes could move, class mobility is there. It becomes a thing where 
the Europeans, specifically Belgium, make it just purely ethnic-based. It's nasty, and it leads to real genocides that have killed hundreds of thousands of people, things you can't even fathom happening in most of the world, but what is happening here in the late 1900s. In 1994, the Burundian president named Cyprian Natayamira, a Hutu, was flying a plane with the Rwandan president, and they ended up being killed when this plane was shot down. And this led in Rwanda to the Rwanda genocide happening, and the UN getting involved in an attempt to establish peace. I'm not going to go into it at all because my next episode is Rwanda, so I'll give you guys all the details on that then. And after all the violence that happened kind of in both countries in wake of the people dying, because both governments put forth the idea that since their president died, it was the other people group that did it. So after all the violence, a coalition government was eventually formed with Sylvester Nitbantunganya, as the head of state. He was a Hutu. In 1996, the Tutsi army staged another coup, and Pierre Bouyoya was made president once again. His rule was faced by domestic and international tariffs and protests. The fighting went back and forth. There was never a time for peace until the Arusha Accord was signed in 2001. It was mediated by the South African leader and hero Nelson Mandela, and it brought a ceasefire into the Burundian Civil War and established a joint representative government between all parties. The war officially ended in 05 when the National Forces of Liberation agreed to stop fighting in Tanzania because they were the very last like Burundian armed group that was still trying to push forth ideals from the war. So once that ended in 2005, the war was officially over. Pierre Nkurunziza was elected president in 2005, and he remained in power until 2020. During his presidency, Burundi experienced periods of economic growth and there were lots of efforts to improve infrastructure and attract foreign investment. The government made many efforts to expand access to education and healthcare services, especially in the rural areas of the country. But Nikurunziza held corrupt power over the country. Because of this, he was hit with heavy EU sanctions in 2015 that made Burundi unable to trade with most powers in the world. A coup was held against him when he ran for his third term, and this was followed by Nikurunziza's. This was followed by his political opponents winding up dead or missing. This was nothing new, as there had been many accusations of human rights abuses throughout his entire presidency. And the International Criminal Court wanted to launch an investigation into Burundi. So, Nikurunziza ended up just pulling his country out of the International Criminal Court. And because of this, he became very unpopular for everything about his long reign, and was eventually pressured heavily by not only the terrorists from the international community, but the pressure from his internal people telling him he needs to get down. So he steps down in 2020 and eventually dies while he's transitioning out of office in that same year. And then that brings us to Evariste Indashime. Evariste Indashime was chosen as president by his predecessor, Pierre Nkurunziza. He has attempted to help the economy and decrease the tensions that have plagued the land for ages. But with that being said, that gets us to the present, where despite all the perseverance and things they've pushed through, Burundi is in a very bad way. Over 85% of the country lives in absolute poverty. To quantify this, the people in the, that percentile make less than $2 a day. Burundi is the most densely populated country in Africa, but has the lowest GDP per capita. As low as 10% of the roads are actually paved, and illiteracy is rampant. The EU sanctions were lifted in the past few years, and this opened Burundi up to more trade with Europe, which is hopefully the shift towards betterment. But... With a lot of corruption in the politics, hardly any choice for the people to fix their country, and not a lot of things moving their way, it's very hard to be positive about Burundi. But with that being said, this country is still here and has persevered through a lot. And that's going to get us to the very end, where I would like to do a takeaway or a mindset, and with this one, it's going to be persevere. I say it very simply for Burundi because we're talking literal genocides here. Hundreds of thousands of people killed within this country on both sides of the same coin, which is 
being Burundi, and the bigger thing of just being a person. These are people who have the same country, fellow countrymen, going through the same thing that have had ethnic tensions raised because of racism from other people, the Belgians and the Europeans. Because of that, hundreds of thousands of people have died. And despite this, despite Burundi being extremely poor, top to bottom, there being a lot of struggle, these people still are seen smiling-faced, very happy to have tourism come their way, known for being friendly, and also known for working really effing hard at everything they do. So... I say you can definitely take that in with yourself and see that these people have pushed through a history of just brutality for the past 200 years because of what's happened with colonialism and all that's come with it. 150 years, I guess, but you get my point. They've pushed and survived it all and had to go through all of it so many times, but they're still here. And the only way they did that was by looking through it and saying, I could get this done. I could push forward. I can get through all of this. So I say you can do the same thing with yourself. Whatever you're going through, as long as you still have air in your lungs, you're still winning. As long as you're still drawing breath, taking steps forward every day, moving forward, crawling forward, whatever it is, you're doing the best. You're still here. And that means you can have another day, another breath, another minute to keep getting better and get out of whatever funk you're in, go achieve greatness, whatever it is. It's just the truth. As long as you're still breathing, you're still good. So always keep breathing. Always keep pushing. Always persevere no matter what it is, no matter anything, because... The world needs you. You matter for being here, and you need to keep it going. So be like Burundi, persevere through fucking everything, and you got this. So I just want to say thank you all so much for being here. And one last time, my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History, and that was Burundi. Appreciate you guys so much. You have a good one.